We just finished a series, and that series was on the mission of God, which is the mission of the church. And then we said we want to come out of that series with a very quick one on our end right now. It's just going to be three weeks in which we're looking at something we're titling, uh, entitling, titling, something in which we're naming, sorry, uh, this series is Winsome. And I've already received a couple of uh, emails from you, and that is saying, hey, I have some concerns about us having a series called Winsome. And does this mean that we're going to compromise? And so these articles that uh, you sent me, which were very helpful and, and very, uh, very good, um, and there I will tell you, no, I have no concerns whatsoever that we're going to compromise. And that's because I'm going to explain to you what I mean by winsome and how it is that I think God is calling us as a people to move forward. And, and let me say this as strongly as I can. Please, would you come in each and every week, this week and the next two, and if you can't be here in person, please catch it. Uh, online. The sermons are always available at other points during the week. Um, they separate those out. So if, even if all you have time for is just to catch the sermon, then please do that. This is a critically important series in the life of our church. Several years ago, we said that the most important series we will ever do, and it's true, is on the gospel itself. And I don't think that we'll ever preach another series. It'll be as important as that. It is the means by which um, God makes right uh, man uh, with himself. And so while we will never preach a series that will be as important as that, there are others that rank up there pretty high saying, boy, this is one that we as a congregation have got to hear, embrace, buy into, um, and, and all of us be on the same page regarding. And so there's going to be some things that'll be challenging over the next two weeks, today and the next two weeks. But when I say winsome, here's what I'm referring to, how it is that we as a church go about making disciples. We're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. And how do we primarily do that? It is primarily through the ministry of the gospel. Now, how do we get the gospel into the hands of a group of people right now who, according to the scriptures, are actually enemies of God? those who are actively in opposition to a surrendering of the controls of their life, who do not want anyone or anything to be the master of their own destiny. They want control. How do we minister in a winsome way when we have a message that ultimately says this, come and die. Come and, and lay your life down before God. You are giving up the controls of your life in order to have him take over. That's how he makes you right. How do we do that in a winsome way? I'm convinced that we can do it. And I'm convinced it is going to require us to change. Change, actually a four-letter word, is it not? It's one of those that we despise. Now, there's some aspects of change that we like. If the change in life is going to benefit us personally, we like that. If the score is tied in a game and it changes so that our team goes ahead, we like that change a lot. If we're on the other end of it, we don't like change. If change means that it's going to be more income for me, we like that change. If change means that others are going to behave in a way that I want them to behave, I will embrace that change. I will like that change. But for most of us, change is very, very difficult. We are all creatures of habit. And change is oftentimes difficult. 
but it is almost always inevitable. There is change in technology. I myself have learned to use new tools. It has been one of the greatest things in the world when I can now take a card and I can just simply tap it on something and it magically pays. My kids had to show me that. I just learned that this past year. I thought we were still swiping and sliding things into, no, no, you can tap and it'll get paid for. Changes in the way that we disseminate information. There are many of you right now in here in this building as well as online that will hear something during the sermon and you will immediately say, is that true? And you'll go to a device and you'll look up something on Google and within seconds you will know whether or not I am correct or incorrect. Technology has changed wildly. Education has changed. If you have done math problems with your kids that are younger in the last five years, you know what I'm talking about. Math, when I was growing up, I thought was just math. Evidently, it's something different now. It's still called math, and there is a thousand ways that you will get to the end, in which I would use three steps. My son now has to use 74,000 steps to get there. Math. It evidently changes. Medicine has changed. There are new medications that are out there. There are medications that offset this medication. There are surgeries that are available that were not available even just 20 years ago. There are now robots that are used. There are doctors who are much like gamers do. There are doctors who can now perform surgeries while away from the patient, while he's work, working with precision on the best ways to, to care for the patients that they have. People change. We change our minds on a short-term basis, but we also change our ways. We change our views. We change our attitudes. If you are the exact same person today that you were 30 years ago, then you're abnormal. We change. Culture changes. Do I have to convince anyone that culture changes? Do you think that we are the same nation today that we were 50 years ago, that we were 100 years ago, that we were 150 years ago? Do you think the, the cultural norms and the values of society are the exact same today as they were when this nation was founded? You ready for this? Churches change. And I only want to focus in on the positive aspect of the, churches, the changes in the churches. Churches that abandon the truths of the scriptures, it is my prayer always that God would either bring them to repentance or he will simply shut them down, remove them from a place of influence. Not talking about those that change by moving away from the person of God and the gospel message and the truths of the scriptures themselves. I'm talking about the ways in which a church just simply changes and how it is it's difficult for us to adapt to that change. Please hear me. The reason that the church must always be changing is because culture is always changing. And unless the church changes and adapts to the culture, guess what we can't do? Fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill. And that is to take this great, timeless message of what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf to a group of people who are constantly changing in front of us. Now, it's here in the scriptures. 
It's in the book of Acts, and I think we're going to be able to illustrate this, but just a couple more introductory comments before we get to our two primary texts for this morning. Tim Keller, who is excuse me, no longer with us, he is with the Lord, just a brilliant thinker a hundred years from now. The church will be talking about Tim Keller and John Piper in the same way that we look back and talk about George Whitfield as well as Jonathan Edwards. And Tim Keller has been someone that the, the church has sought for for years and years and years to find out um, some, some information, partly because he pays people to do his research for him. And that's not a slight, that's a good thing. He, he is so well-read, he gets folks to, uh, to bring a lot of information. And then he absorbs this information and can make a lot of accurate predictions about what's coming down the road. Here's what he said. For a thousand years, the Western church's basic model was premised on the social reality that people would be coming, prepared, and positive, and we could simply preach our sound biblical sermons to them. For a thousand years, the Western church has been built on the premise that people are looking for a church, and so the better we do things for people that are looking for a church, the church is going to continue to grow. In other words, there'd been social pressure on the Western world, social pressure for people to come to church, to engage in church, to embrace the basic values of the church because for most of the Western world, it had been dominated by Christian thought. Now hear me. The Western world is changing. And it is not dominated by Christian thought. Now, we can either bemoan that or we can change and we can say, God, would you use us once again in a powerful way to influence the thinking of others? Because our ultimate goal is, God, is that you and that others would connect, that you would redeem them, you would change them. We say it a lot over here. Does God need us? Of course not. He doesn't need us for a single thing in ministry. If God wanted to, he could snap his fingers and literally the entire world would fall on its knees before him. But that is not the method he has chosen to use. The method he has chosen to use is to use you and to use me in ways with our neighbors that I would not do if I were God. I would not roll the dice and trust us. But remember, he said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to build. I'm going to build my church. There's nothing that can stand against it. And so I want you to go and to make disciples. Now, how we go about making disciples, I think, is going to be everything. One more quote from Tim Keller. He's now specifically talking about America. We are entering into a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards faith and belief in God. Truth, sin, and the afterlife are all disappearing in more and more people. Now culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Church leaders must find new ways to reach people who won't even think about coming to church or believing Christianity's most basic concepts. And we must find ways of churching and forming people as Christians in the midst of a very different culture. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you would, in honor of God's word, if you are physically able to do so, would you stand 
as we read just a brief section. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read just verses 19 through 23. This is Paul who is uh, speaking. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You may be seated. Now here's what Paul is not saying. I have compromised the message of the gospel so that some people will just simply listen. He has not compromised a single message at all in this process. What he is saying is, For those who have a culture that goes like this, I try to enter into that culture, understand that culture, speak to them in ways that that culture would understand so that I can bring the gospel message to them in a more effective way. So if they're Jewish, I think like a Jew. I talk, I use vocabulary like a Jew, and I bring them to this gospel message through what would make sense to a Jewish person. If it's someone who's a Gentile, I speak like a Gentile. I use illustrations like a Gentile. I, 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 I uh, act around them, talk around them, etc., like I would be a Gentile in order that they might have a better understanding of the gospel. Whatever the situation is, Paul says, I'm trying to get this gospel message into the hands of people in ways that would understand. Paul is not in any way, shape, or form saying that he thinks he is responsible for their salvation. He's just being wise in the process of getting it into their hands. Do you know what the church has done for the last thousand years? Done a really good, effective job at ministering to a culture who was looking for a church. Who bought into the same basic tenets in life. The Western world was built on Christian thought and Christian values. There's no question about it. The Western world has thrived. God has blessed it tremendously. And there is no question in a large, large part, it is due to Christian thought and world life and worldview. That is changing. And so we are called, I believe, to change. Please hear me. We must change our methods without compromising or changing the message. Jesus is still the ultimate solution to every person's ultimate problem. The answer is not good deeds. The answer is is not uh, more money that goes towards this cause or that cause. The answer is not any particular cause. Jesus is still the solution to every person's ultimate problem. But how we talk about him and how we present him, how we try to introduce him to others, I believe with every fiber of my being has to change because we no longer live in a culture that is prepared to hear the message of Jesus. 
I'm not going to read the entirety of the section, but Peter preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 2. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts 2 and Acts 17. We're going to show you what it looks like in a prepared world in Acts chapter 2 and what it looks like in an unprepared world in Acts 17. Uh, but in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, it ends like this. <clears throat> now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the message or the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And here's the response. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, that is impressive. And from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, which we will not be reading, I'm only going to give you the outline of what it is that he says. Peter gives a sermon in there to this group of people. In verses 14 through 24, he simply tells them the Spirit has come in the ministry of Jesus. They had prophecy. They had read the Old Testament passages. They knew that there was a time coming in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the people. Peter simply points and says the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and it's been poured out in the life and the ministry of Jesus. In verses 25 through 32, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how this is the proof that Jesus is the one who was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. He's the one who is the promised heir of David. They were waiting for someone to come in the line of David. And Peter's now connecting the dots for this group of people who buy into all of this. And he says, the Holy Spirit has come. And by the way, Jesus was raised from the dead. And since he was raised from the dead, it's proof that he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. In verses 33 through 36, he tells us that Jesus poured out the Spirit when he ascended into heaven. He goes back to heaven and he says, go now. And then I'm, I'm, the Holy Spirit's going to come down on you in a powerful way. And then there's this day of Pentecost that takes place. The Holy Spirit is on the crowd around and go, man, they're drunk. And Peter said, no, 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 they're not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit. Now, who is Peter talking to? Peter is talking to a prepared audience at this point. What do I mean by prepared? Peter's sermon was given to a people that shared a belief in the same God, the validity of the scriptures, the standard of morality which is given in the scriptures, and they believed in the coming Messiah. All four of these things they shared a common belief in. And so Peter just merely points to the person of Christ, uses the resurrection of Jesus as proof, the, the, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and says, all of this is what we were told about. It's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Everything we've been waiting for, studying on, uh, is, is, is here in the person of Christ. And what was the response? Thousands believed. If you were to walk into downtown Tallahassee and stand on a street corner, and preach this same message that Peter preached. Do you think thousands are going to come to faith? How about 
Manhattan. How about downtown Atlanta? Miami, Orlando, Houston. Cities all over America that used to be one of the major centers where Christian thought was discussed and talked about and even, if you will, improved upon as it's applied to government and medicine and law, etc. Places now where... Let's be honest, Christian life or worldview is very much in the minority and very much looked down and frowned upon. Now, we can have one of two responses. We can either say, Ugh, doggone world. Remember how great it was when we used to be in charge? Remember when people used to listen to us and they would come in by the droves and and remember when we had a hundred churches that were thriving and booming and, and people were choosing their churches based solely upon how the needs of their family could be met. We can look back and we can look down upon society. We can talk about how stupid society has become, how ridiculous they are, how they've thrown away all of the values. And we can point a finger and say, bad, 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 repent, 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 turn or burn. Or we can understand for many in the culture now, they don't even understand where we're coming from. Not because they're so dead set against us and trying to disprove us, because they literally don't know where we're coming from. See, all along while the church was ministering and ministering effectively to those who were looking for a church, we forgot to inspire the people over the last hundred years in America to go about ministering this gospel to a group of people who want nothing to do with God. And slowly, slowly, we became a more and more biblically illiterate culture where the culture at large does not buy into the basic tenets of the faith and the culture is no longer prepared. The culture no longer has a shared belief in the validity of the scriptures. They no longer have a shared belief in the God of the Bible. The culture does not buy into the same basic tenets that we do. And so trying to minister them in the same way that you administer to one another, it's not going to work. Here in this particular day and age, Peter was a Jew giving a message to other Jews on a Jewish holy day about the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. Thousands. Believe. Fast forward probably somewhere between five and ten years, and Paul has come to faith now. And go over to Acts chapter 17. Paul has come to faith. He has been blinded on the road to Damascus. The voices come down from heaven. And, and whereas Peter was going to be the primary, not exclusively, but the primary voice uh, for, that would go to the Jewish church, seeing the, the conversion of those who are in the Jewish faith coming to, uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, Paul was going to be the primary voice that was going to be uh, introducing those in the Gentile world to the, the, the Christian faith. And so Paul, after being trained, after um, being schooled, if you will, by God in the desert, spending some time away, Paul comes uh, into Athens. And I want to draw your attention uh, first to uh, verses 16 through uh, 21. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A man named Leon Morris captures this best, and I'd rather just read it to you because his wording is just much better than mine could be. Athens, the cradle of democracy, attained the foremost place among the Greek city-states in the early 5th century BC by reason of the lead that she took in resisting the Persians. That was the dominant power. It was the Jews that was then um, uh, the Babylonians. It was then the Persians. It was then the Greeks that would finally be overtaken by the, by the uh, Romans later on. But right now... Uh, Athens played a major role in resisting the Persian Empire. Uh, After this victory in 338 BC, Athens was treated generously and allowed to retain much of her ancient freedom. The Romans conquered Greece in about 146 BC, but again allowed Athens to carry on her own institutions as a free and allied city within the empire. The cultural and intellectual significance of Athens in the ancient world is aptly summarized by F.F. Bruce, who said, the sculpture, literature, and oratory of Athens in the 5th and 4th centuries B.C. remains unsurpassed. In philosophy, she took the leading place, being the native city of Socrates and Plato and the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. Her cultural influence in the Greek world is also seen the fact that she was, uh, was, uh, was the Attic dialect of Greek spoken at first over a very restricted area as compared with Ionic and Doric. That formed the base of the latter Hellenistic speech, which would be Koine Greek. It was at this time the leading center of learning. In modern idiom, we might describe it as the great university city. Athens was a place where all of the great thinkers went. Athens was a place that had diverse thought. There was no one God that dominated the culture. And Paul walks into this culture where they are standing around trying to figure out what it is that they can believe that is new. If it's not new, it was boring to them. He's looking at all of the idols that are stacked up around there. And it says that his spirit is greatly troubled within him. Meaning that when he looks out and he sees all of the people that are wasting their lives, bowing down to foreign gods, trying to figure out what the latest fad in philosophy is, his heart breaks for them. And he's not having an attitude that says, this world ought to shape up. He's saying, oh God, would you use me? Because they're looking for something. They weren't looking for a church. But they were always looking for something. And so Paul marches in and he spent some time. And I noticed that it says that he 
spends just a little time getting to know the culture before he tries to evangelize anyone. I won't read it, but from verses 22 through 31, Paul is going to affirm their religious fervor. That comes in verses 22 and 23. In other words, he just affirms that you are religious people. In verses 24 through 29, he's going to talk about God. In verse 24, he talks, it says that God has created the earth, but he does not reside in buildings. He's looking again at idols that were stacked out there. Hey, our God is not like that. The unknown God, which you guys can't figure out, this is the God of the universe. He does not reside in buildings. He then says that God created man, but that he does not need man for anything in verse 25. In verse 26, he says that God is sovereign over literally everything on planet earth. In verse 27, and he says that God put in every man a yearning for God. In every single human being, Paul says, there is this deep-seated internal drive for something. And I'm telling you, you think that there's something else out there in the world. There is something else out there in the world. It's a drive that God put inside of you that is designed to drive you towards seeking after him. See, Paul would say you're searching for something, aren't you? Paul would say you're finding, aren't you, that uh, your, your talent has not been enough? Your job has not been enough? You try to perfect every relationship that you have and it's not been enough? You've made more money than you know what to do with and it hasn't been enough. There's this drive inside of us that God put that, that, that is searching for the person of God. Finally, in verses 28 through 29, he says that God himself is the source of true life for man. In verse 30, he lets them know that God requires repentance. And in verse 31, he says that God will indeed hold people accountable. Now notice that in Peter's message and in Paul's message, both of them come back to the essentials. But I want you to see what it is that Paul is doing right now. Does Paul stand up as a Jewish man talking to a Jewish people on a Jewish holiday about a Jewish Messiah? Or does Paul find a way, he even quotes their philosophers, he, he quotes uh, uh, poetry uh, in there to him. He finds a way to come in and to get them to simply think more about what it is that they're doing. Peter was looking for a one-time evangelistic meeting. Paul was looking for a series of meetings in which there would be great discussion and thought. Paul's speech was given to an unprepared audience. They did not have a shared belief in the same God, the validity of the scriptures. They did not have a shared belief in what the standard of morality is, where it would even come from, who is the one who gets to decide what is and what is not right and wrong. And then finally, the need even for a Messiah. They didn't even have a need in their own minds for a Messiah to bail them out of anything. Finally, this is where we begin to wrap up. Verses 32 through 34 of Acts 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
Paul has just poured himself out. He's wisely discerned how he can get in, talk their language. They hear about the resurrection. Some of them go, yeah, fantastic. So you're telling me that people come back from the dead. You want me to believe that there is an individual who died, but then came back from the dead. <laughs> I don't know if you have heard it recently, but I, in your own life, I will tell you, I love, and I mean it, love meeting with people who would not consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. And there is no question, this is the greatest stumbling block that I walk into. Just a couple months ago, a gentleman in my office, he and his fiance, as we walked through a four-week investigation, using the book of John to look at the person of Christ, and we get to the end of, end of that investigation, he says, this has been one of the best uses of my time. He said, I just can't get there. I love the ideas that are here. I just can't believe that, and he quoted me, a dude went into a grave dead and came out alive. He was very polite. I assure you, I've had many times in which folks have not mocked me personally, have just mocked this notion that I believe that somebody really would, on their own accord, raise themselves from the dead. Paul, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. He gets to the end of his discussion, his presentation of the basic facts, and they say, huh, I want to hear some more about this. Could we meet over a period of time and, and discuss and talk? I, this is strange to us, but I'm interested. It is my favorite way to go about getting the good news in the hands of folks now. I learned this in the middle of 1996 when I heard another man talk about this exact same system. I learned it directly from him. And the first time that I heard him talk about this system, I was so overwhelmed and impressed with him as a human being that I just didn't even learn the system. So I had to go back through it again. Once I caught on to it, I went, oh, wait a minute, I'm putting all of the weight in the hands of God. And so I'm just meeting with someone and it's actually a spiritual dialogue that's taking place. They're talking about some of their ideas. I'm talking about some of my ideas. I'm bringing them back to studying the scriptures. Each week they're walking away and for four weeks investigating, reading what the Bible has to say about the person of Jesus. I can put all the weight on him. And so some of these studies we do, some folks... Week one, say, man, this seems like it's going to be great. Let's keep going. Some folks say, you know what? I don't think I want to do this anymore. Some mock. Some said, can we hear some more? So Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were these names. Some mocked, some wanted to discuss more, and some believed. Hear me. Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might win some. 
Over the next two weeks, I want to hopefully from the scriptures make a compelling case to you that we are in an age of the church in which God is calling us to shift, to adjust, to change our methods without changing the method. I think we should no longer figure out how it is that we can get thousands of people into a room on a Sunday morning so that they might hear something from someone. I think we've got to figure out how do we create a whole bunch of Pauls who go into their neighborhoods and over a period of time sit and investigate, talk, who know that at some times you're going to be mocked. At other times they're going to say, talk some more. And some are going to say, I'm in. But rather than a church for a culture that's looking for a church, how about we commit to being, getting equipped to become the church that scatters all throughout the world that we have right now and and takes this gospel message to an unprepared group of people. If we do that, I believe God will bless. If we do that, if we do not, I believe Wildwood has approximately 25 to 35 years left of existence. And we will simply shrivel up and we'll die. Now, God will build his church. The church, Big C Church, will continue moving on. But I'm convinced any church that does not change continues to build its model on a model of we're building a church for people who are looking for a church. In 25 to 35 years will be irrelevant to the culture. Can you imagine how God would use us in the lives of the people in Tallahassee? 